0: That you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in an Italian, and your life will be great.
1: Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola. I am the thorn between two roses this afternoon with the one and only Ms. Rosella Rago and the founder of the feast, Dolores Alfieri Taranto. Ladies. I don't know if I've ever had the honor of being the sole male co-host amongst you guys for uh, any episodes yet. So it's wonderful to be together.
0: Wow. Beato tra le donne, JV.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> just surrounded by women. All that so you can't escape us.
1: I am surrounded by Italian women. That is true. What what a be, what better life than that?
0: Really?
2: Yeah. I was going to say, how else would you want it?
1: No, it's true. I, I have, you know, between my wife Who's part Tuscan my daughter now part Tuscan, our nanny that's become part of our family she's from Tuscany, so I always say am surrounded by Tuscan women in my house and Italian women outside and uh, I stand no shot And you know what I think Italian women should run the world anyway, so what's the difference i' I've conceded long ago
0: yeah John's the perfect man because he he realizes he knows when he is outnumbered and he doesn't fight back
1: no I got no fight left my wife broke me long I mean my mother fight back I got nothing. I got I got a Sicilian mother. I got an Albert Stacy Tuscan wife. I'm, I'm a, I'm a complete pulp of manliness at this point. And yeah, why fight back? Italian women are great. Who wouldn't want to be led and taken care of by Italian women?
2: There you go. That's like, well, can't disagree <laughs> with that.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Not
2: going to lie.
1: Yep. I always say, if we want to fix all the world's problems, just bring in a bunch of Italian moms, nonne, Zia and just send them out and make them do their magic. And I think everything would be fine and it's appropriate because it's uh it speaks to the topic of conversation today because we have an author on who is a best-selling author, an Italian-American woman herself, but uh, I think the book that most jumps out for our audience is one that she wrote called Unto the Daughters, and uh, if you are really in tribe as an Italian-American, you know Unto the Daughters, my assumption is, is a, a play on the title of Unto the Sons by Gay Talese, which is uh, one of the uh, more well-known pieces of the Italian-American literary canon and I'm very happy that we have Karen Tintori with us today and I think uh, it's a perfect segue in uh, our our bragging about Italian women. So Karen, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you today.
1: Am I safe in saying that On to the Daughters is a response or an ode or a, a nod to Gay Talisa's book? You,
3: you got it. You got it. What happened, um, the book was when I was working on it, it was the working title was "A Gentle Wave Goodbye," and the editors and St. Martin's wanted me to find a quote in the Bible, some kind of biblical or you know, Socrates, some some well-known ancient quote on fathers and daughters or brothers and sisters, and we came up blank. And finally, I proposed unto the daughters as an homage to unto the sons. And, um, I did get to meet Gay Talise in New York. Um, he didn't give me a cover blurb. <laughs> I really wanted one from him, but uh, but uh, I even had a back door through an assistant to his wife whose family lives here in Detroit, but nope,
0: he's not exactly the warmest, fuzziest
3: guy. I was terrified to approach him at the parade, but I did. And I introduced myself. And he was, remember, all dressed in white with a white hat and the whole the whole bit. And uh he was gracious, but yeah, he's a little holds himself very proud. Well, I have to add in the middle of this conversation that
2: I actually did get a blurb from him for my unpublished manuscript. Brava! Yeah, got gotta at least gotta give him credit from the from the other side. I wouldn't I still wouldn't call him warm and fuzzy, but we uh we did have him on the podcast when Anthony and I were were the hosts. And then uh, when I was working for um, the governor again, you know, kind of circled back as as being a prominent Italian American. And uh, yeah, I asked him and he gave me a beautiful, wonderful blurb that I'm still waiting to slap on the cover of a book. (laughs) All right. Never know.
1: (laughs) You never know. (laughs) You never know.
0: (laughs) Nope. (laughs) When we were at the parade, he gave uh, another Italian American writer a female Italian-American writer, some very interesting advice because uh, she was marching with us all day. And, you know, she was a little bit on my nerves this one because she had like a shirt about like the the Indians, how like, you know, it's really their day. And, and I'm like, what are you doing here? Go home. But <laughs> telling him about, you know, she's like, you know, I, I, I'm a writer and I'm a mother of three and I'm a single mother of three and I'm a writer. And do you have any advice for me? You know, I'd really appreciate anything. You're so wise. And he turns to her, and you know what he says? Here's something else. No, no. no. Here's some advice. Don't ever have another kid because you need another kid like you need a hole in the head.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh!
0: Don't have any more kids. He said.
1: Nothing <laughs> says Italian American family values like Gay Talisa's take on contraception. See, there you go. Oh
2: my gosh! Amazing.
1: You know, I I had a brief interaction with him once. Uh, I had been. A teenager and active at the National Italian American Foundation for a long time. And um, I'd gotten to know, you know, I sort of sneaked my way into some of the VIP rooms at the events. And I knew a few people and uh, I had met him really briefly while he was, you know, on his way to the dais. And not enough that he would remember me, but I was in an airport on my way to Tokyo. This is probably 15 years ago. And uh, I'm going into the airport lounge. And I see a gentleman in a wide brimmed fedora and very Natalie dressed. And I, I said to myself, that's gay to So I walked over and I introduced myself as a member of the National Italian American Foundation, a great admirer, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, he just kind of looked at me like, okay. And, and now what, you know, like, very nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. And that was the end of it. So that was my only interaction with him. I would love to interview him one day, but uh, it's safe to say onto the suns is a title that many Italian-Americans would recognize. It's become, uh, like I said, a part of the canon. Right. But Karen, tell us what to the Daughters, how, how do you summarize that one?
3: My mission in writing Unto the Daughters, it, it was a 12-year journey. It's a Sicilian-American story. And Sicilian-Americans, as you probably know, omerta, you don't tell. You don't air the fam- family laundry. You don't tell secrets. I I grew up on that. And um, the mission was to give back to history, to return her place to history, a great aunt of mine who was a family secret for 80 years and who was murdered here in Detroit by her brothers somewhere around 1920. She is not on the 1920 census. And so... I mean, the night she was murdered, her clothing was burned. Her photographs were burned. Every She was scratched. She was obliterated from the family passport. And I felt it was my mission to give her back her name and to speak her name and to tell her story. And it was like, how does this, ha- how does something like this happen in an Italian Catholic family? And so I began a, a long um, journey of research. Uh, My my mother's youngest sister, my Aunt Grace, literally told me the family secret literally behind her mother's back. Wow! I had been asking and asking for years to see the family documents. I wrote another book called Trap, the 1909 Cherry Mine Disaster, which is like the Titanic set in a coal mine. My grandfather, Tintori, who comes from uh, the Emilia-Romagna region, I grew up hearing that he survived that mind disaster he died the day after my mother told him she was pregnant with me and so when i started genealogical research i started with him and at that time i didn't know much italian my italian was the sicilian i heard my mother speaking to her sisters and her mom and the northern dialect the the very guttural nono is a uh, dialect that my father spoke with his nonina. My, my parents had five words that they probably could speak together from the the dialects and so i had to learn italian i had to write to italy for documents and my mother kept saying to me oh w- when you do our our story grandma's got all that stuff you don't have to you know you know, it's not gonna be so hard for you i started with getting books on the italian like th- they were peasants they were farmers in palermo and partenico Francesca was actually born in Corleone, so I wanted to know what, what was the life like? My background is as a journalist, so I approached this with that kind of a, of a questioning mind. I, I write these narrative nonfiction books, I call it, with my novelist heart and my journalist's head. And so I did all sorts of research on what life was like for them. I finally got my grandmother to sit down like three years before she died with the at that time the big gigantic cameras that you had to put on tripods mm-hmm. that were as tall as you got her to talk about answer some questions about growing up in Sicily, but I, they kept stalling me on the documents and it didn't get through my thick head that I was being stalled for a reason. I was all I just you know oh oh we forgot Grandma has a doctor's appointment tomorrow we you know we, can we make it another day well when well I don't know because at that point my grandfather had died. And my grandmother was living one week with each of her three daughters. And so finally, the the a July morning, I pull up at Aunt Grace's house. She had a corner house. The, the pull up at the side. It's a July morning. The windows are open. I'm like, oh, God, they, they didn't cancel on me. And I walk in and the box of documents is sitting on one side of the kitchen table. And I walk around the table to kiss my grandmother hello. And she's already her her. Scalp is pink through her white hair. She's sputtering in Sicilian. Who's she going to show? Who she's going to tell? I go to kiss her hello. And Grace picks up, comes from the other side of the table, picks up the top document, walks behind her mom next to me, opens it up. And there's Francesca's name obliterated. It was the family passport. And she said, that's the one they got rid of. Did your mother ever tell you? Wow. And my jaw falls to the floor. And she goes never mind, and she closes it up and she puts it back in the box and she goes to busy herself at the kitchen sink. I'm going Grace, you can't do that to me. You got to tell me. You got to tell me what happened. And my grandmother soaks that, and which was why I never went back to my grandmother directly to ask her any questions. I I used intermediaries, my mother, and uh, some of my mom's first cousins. But she finally Grace finally explained to me that she didn't find out the secret until she was adult an adult with five kids and they packed up a camper and they went on a family vacation and happened to stop by one of the murderers, one of the, one of her mother's brothers. And that's when my grandmother said, you went to visit him, that son of a blah, blah, blah. And the the story kind of eked out that had only been spoken about when the sisters were, were whispering. My mother said she, she heard them sometimes when she was a little girl whispering about Francesca. Wow. I'm assuming it ruins the novel to tell us why she was murdered. No, because I think there's a, there's a lot about, um, there's no, I don't think it does. It's, it's, it may even be on the book jacket. Oh, okay. But no, they came over in 1914, the whole family, the the women and the younger children came over in 1914 and the passport was my great grandfather, the King of, of Italy, and all, then on the other page was my great-grandmother and all the kids. My great-grandfather and my grandmother's brothers, my great-uncles, came over to build the trolley rails in Detroit. So they had been going back and forth and bringing money. And then they finally brought the family over in, in 1914. So you've got, that. about the time that this is all taking place, you've got prohibition. You've got Detroit sitting a mile across the Detroit River from Canada. Canada is south of us here. You've got rum running when the river freezes over between Detroit and Canada. You've got it going south to Toledo, Ohio. And you've got street gangs. You've got, you know, the... the um, Colionese stayed in, in one neighborhood and the people from Partinico stayed in another neighborhood. And uh, people, as people brought other people over, they were in little enclaves. And this was the beginning of the, the what they called the mafia. It wasn't the mafia mafia like we think of the mafia. It was a bunch of street thugs. There was the gang from Partinico, the gang from Corleone, the gang from here. They were stealing tires. They were stealing cars. They were running liquor and they were involved in the prostitution and one of the uncles who was deported back to Italy who was not involved in the murder I my mother said to me oh he was my favorite uncle I just loved him and I remember when I was two years old going to Jackson prison on Sundays to visit him I'm like oh my god wow. Mom, <laughs>
2: oh wow
3: <laughs> and I did get his prison records and he did not look so handsome in the prison record I just- <laughs> My mom one day I said this is such a handsome memory vocal. yeah right so so the reason um my great-grandfather promised Francesca to the son of a of a couple in a better gang he wanted to get his boys a leg up in that in that gang and she was in love with a young barber her own age this guy that he promised her to was 20 years older than she was she was 16 and so um she eloped with the barber. I'm still looking for the barber. If anybody knows this story and knows of the barber, I'd love, I keep waiting one day to get an email. Um, We don't know what happened to the barber. I said, that was the second question to my mother was what happened to the barber. And she said, he, he, he he hightailed it out of town because he knew he was next. So it was a re, it was an honor killing because she destroyed the family honor, but it was also a revenge killing Fair. by the brothers. Yeah, because even in Sicily, when young women wanted to marry someone and and refused whoever their father and mother promised them to, they ran away, they eloped, and they came back. You weren't a virgin anymore. Who was going to want you? And so they won. And so the fujita is is the way that they. Got their own bushes and married for love. And so poor Francesca came back home thinking that the same rules applied here and didn't realize what animals her brothers were.
2: I thought it might be something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a terribly tragic story. I wonder, was your family, like your grandmother, was she um, nervous for the story to get out because of the actual murder or because of, you know, it sounds like a very sordid family history? criminality and prostitution like is it
3: kind of the whole ball of wax or there's a
0: lot of bruta figura
2: in the med here
3: yeah no no what she kept saying it was fear it was fear she kept saying people could oh, get people could get killed i think all of those women were terrified of their brothers and their father after that sure. and were thinking like you know i could be next i have to i, I can't talk we have to pretend she never existed I called my mother when I got home from Grace's and I said, is what Aunt Grace told me true? And my mother growled at me over the phone. man, you forget that blankety blank, blank, blank. Your father went to his grave and he never knew that. And I was like blown back. I'm like, my father went to his grave and never knew it. Not only my father, my godmother's husband went to his grave years after the book was published and never knew it because it you know vergonia it's it's shame it's it's shame and fear and you know who who wants who wants to be associated my sister is not in the family tree that's in the beginning of the book because she said it's just a terrible story and she didn't want her name associated with it Wow. and Mm -hmm. so it, it just The the reverberations down through the generations of the the trauma, you know, they say that, that um, trauma can get passed on through a mother to a child. And and I can believe that.
1: That's a topic we love to talk about here.
2: We do. Yeah. That's why I'm kind of like my line of, of questioning, I guess, you know, I, for me, as somebody who, who collects family stories and writes about them and openly shares them, I mean, there is like a line, I mean, you know, as much as you share there's as much as you don't share, right
3: yes
2: people maybe forget that you know um so i I do have certain stories that like I won't tell or I don't tell, but I always find it interesting the person who like like you I think it was your sister you just said, you know who doesn't want to even like be associated with it because it's like it's it's there, right it's history, it's part of the family lore yes. Uh, it's just interesting to me, everyone else. everyone has like a different response, you know, like emotional response to these things, and it's hard for me to understand the like keeping it hidden, especially when it's like i mean something like that is like crazy, but it's generations removed, right? and it's like right. it's just such a good, bad story
3: <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah. it it's you know because of half of the family absolutely you're not you you're not to write about this we're going to we're going to forget it ever happened and the other half of the family like cheering me on right um, right yep i wrote it three whole times as a novel three complete novels because you know had to change the identity it started out the protagonist was a 40 year old yep this is the crazy story the 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 inciting incident in the novels always was finding someone finding the grandparents' true wedding picture. We grew up with a picture of my grandparents in peasant costumes that was hand tinted, you know, those sepia, and then they touched them up with paint. That was grandma and grandpa's wedding picture. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what if there was a real wedding picture? And so that's what I had my Snoopy person find. Well, oh my God, here's a real wedding picture with grandma and grandpa in a gown, and, and he's got a boutonniere on and she's got a bouquet and there are two other people in the picture and I know Uncle Louie, but who's this girl who looks like me? Mm. So my agent couldn't sell it, the first version. Second version, I forget what I changed, but then in changing the protagonist and the time, you change all of the cultural references. It was a mess. And then my cousin who was an acting, who had been in acting school said to me, you need to make the main, the protagonist closer in age to Francesca so that when she discovers the secret, she's going to say, oh my God, it could have, it could have happened to me. Right. So right. none of those sold. And then my, my editor from Trap said, you have got to give yourself permission to write her story. And to to imagine her life based on all of your research because with trapped the only thing that I made up the only thing that I made up was a conversation in the kitchen of my cousins the morning of the mine disaster in trapped in unto the daughters I had to reimagine a lot and I used a lot of facts but I had to reimagine certain things that happened based on family stories telling me you know what had happened and the version that finally sold was the narrative nonfiction version, the one that my trapped editor had suggested that I just get brave enough and do it. The day my grandmother died, well, the day of the, her funeral. Um, back then, we were now in Detroit, you have the 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 person is on the wake is held the morning of the funeral at the church, and no three days of being laid out anymore and visitation. And, but with grandma it was, and the morning of the funeral, the cousin, my cousin from acting school said to me, did you see the picture? And I immediately knew it had to be a picture of Francesca. I said, where? Well, it was next to grandma's casket. So we get to the funeral lunch and I say to Grace, can I see the picture? And well, later, um, um, and I go, oh my God, if I don't see it today, I'm never going to see it. I know I'm never going to see it. And so I go to Uncle Sam, her husband. I say, Uncle Sam, can I have the keys to the car? There's something Aunt Grace wants me to go get from the trunk. He gave me the keys to the car. I went to the car. I popped open the trunk. The picture was upside down in the trunk. And I turned it over. And there was my grandparents' true wedding picture in gown, in boutonniere. And it's the cover of the book. And that there were two extra people. In additional people in the picture and one of them was Francesca and I looked up to the sky and I am getting chills again every time I think about this and I said thank you you wanted me to tell your story yeah kidding oh I just got chills too yep I kept waiting for a sign from her I kept waiting you know I, I have a lot of psychic stuff happen and I I and I haven't heard from her since and the only reason that picture survived it's my grandparents true wedding picture well they got married the year before. And they lived in a different house. And my grandmother hid the picture all those years. Can you imagine not even being able to show Uh, you a picture or share it with your kids? No, in today's society, it's all about sharing pictures. Could you imagine? Yeah.
1: Especially people who you think about, like, what few pictures they had. I mean, these aren't people who are, you know, dolling up their kids on a uh bearskin rug and you know taking baby pa- I mean
3: exactly uh, exactly most
1: families are lucky if they have a passport photo a wedding photo is a luxury beyond so yeah that it speaks volumes about you know you talk about your grandmother and your mom and your aunts kind of demurring and shifting when you were looking to go through documents and stuff and I have to say my mom and her mom and my aunt they've always had this ability to not answer a question and uh, it, it was something that I always if you know as a younger person would be frustrated by but as an adult i came to admire because there was a great strength in their ability to sort of just continue on no matter the circumstances and not let it impact and not let it spread it was like if a bad energy or uh some kind of something akin to like an infection that could spread through the family they would they would contain it themselves they were like living hazmat suits for for bad things and uh it's like being a kidney in the family body almost you know, just taking in all the filth and kind of pushing it out and um, I don't think that gets recognized enough in a community like ours where family is such a an, an invaluable necessity uh, that that somebody always has to serve that role you know it, it, families have a lot of complicated ugly things, and yeah, you do have to deal with them and expel them from the corpus of the family and that falls oftentimes to the mothers and grandmothers and, you know, or, or or others in the family. I, I, you know, I think it's a a big part of what keeps our families together.
2: That's also how people get sick. Yes, it's true. Yes. You know, I mean, not to to put an eye on anything. yeah, yeah. Not to like, you know, you mentioned your mom and stuff, but that's how people get sick. And I actually know many people, like I know people that I've loved who played that role and I'm, I'm convinced part of the reason they're not here with us anymore is because it's too heavy a load. And, and holding in dark secrets and, you know, which might not be exactly what you were referring to, but like, you know, being the one who's carrying all that is, it
3: doesn't, it, it makes you ill. Yeah. Well, my mother had said to me, I have a secret of my own. And if we go to lunch one day, I'll tell you. And I, you know, I always felt that there was something there that, that my mother was holding back. So we went to lunch. Where do you want to go to lunch? You want to go to Red Lobster. We go to Red Lobster. We have lunch and have dessert. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I say, so mom, you told me that you had a, a secret. You were going to tell me. She goes, secret? What secret? I don't have any secrets. And my mother died of cancer. So two yeah. she had mm-hmm. two different kinds of cancers.
1: Yeah. You're not kidding. Mm.
3: Yeah. 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 I'm sorry to hear that. But
2: it's a tough one. I mean, because i I really understand this kind of, I I feel like I'm both ways. Like I have this part of me that's really good at keeping secrets. Like if you want nobody, if you want to share something with somebody and be assured Mm -hmm. that nobody else will ever know, I am the person. But at the same time, I'm the collector of stories. And I feel like it's really important for us to know where we come from and to know our history, because it really does get in the way. And I mean, you're describing you know, your grandmother having, like, hiding this picture of the most, one of the most important days of her life, all of her life, from her whole family. I just think, like, what kind of damage that does to you, you
3: know? Yeah, it, it wasn't until I, oh, the book had been published, and I'm looking at the cover, and one day I'm going, like, my grandma, my grandfather was adorable. He was, he was something else, and my grandmother got to marry for love, Um. But her mother, I mean, there there were stories in the book that people, well, my Sicilian family didn't do that. But my, one of the stories, my grandmother, when the kids would, the daughters would fold the laundry and put it away, my great-grandmother had Quincy apples that she would tuck in the laundry drawer to keep them smelling fresh. And my grandmother... Little kid, she would bite the apple and put it upside down thinking, you know, oh, I just snuck some of the apple and nobody's going to know. <laughs> well, one day our mother finds the bitten apples and took it and said, you want an apple? You want an apple? And bashed my grandmother's two front teeth out with the apple. Yeah. Okay. So my grandparents always, that, that was back in the days of dentures. And the one of the, we even have a picture of them, like to the grandkids, they'd make us all laugh by sticking their tongue under the top of their dentures and pushing them out of their mouth. But I'm looking at the wedding picture and I'm going, oh, my grandfather fell in love with my grandmother, even though she didn't have two front teeth, which made me love him even more. Yeah, you
1: know, there's a lot of stories like that of because um, I think also you talk about like ancestral trauma, you know, poverty and even I mean, poverty might be a strong word. Even the, the process of, uh, of trying to better your economic situation, it's it's taxing. And there's a lot of sense that these women in particular, right, because traditionally in those days, the man is out in labor and the woman's home with everything swirling around. And we we usually lived in kinship groups. So there's aunts and uncles and cousins. So the whole sort of family clan dynamic, right, all that pressure, like we're talking about keeping secrets, keeping uh, keeping the peace. And sometimes you get that that snap, you know, and uh, it's ugly. And it's something that I think a lot of families, particularly in in an era like today, where the idea of, you know, striking a child is almost anathema as it should be. But, you know, I I don't think we put these things in context. There's a lot of shame about that. When in reality, if you really try to be empathetic, you, you can understand how much these people were just keeping it together. And that's really hard.
2: So well said. That's very well said. I think that's exactly right.
3: Yeah. Plus, they had a lot of kids. And an example of, of what you said, John, about the tight quarters and the I mean, they were using scrub boards to wash clothes that there was all the, the laundry and the cooking and the baking and everything. You know, no modern conveniences like we have right now. The washing machine, I think, just came out at about that time. But my grandmother used to say, oh, our Kumaris came over from Italy and they stayed with us and we all slept in the same bed, head to foot, four people in a bed. And I'm thinking in terms of queen size beds. I'm like, no, Karen, those were double beds. Yeah. Four people crammed in a double bed with no air conditioning, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: And I think I think in my even my dad growing up in the you know 60s and 70s, and uh, my aunt and I talk about it all the time. And my aunt, my parent, my father's family. I, I was born in the same tenement house that my grandmother's family owned. That my dad was born in, and my grandmother was born in. So you could you could see the economic stagnation. Um, and my dad, his parents, his brother and his sister, lived in three railroad rooms uh, with no walls in between them. And my aunt basically had to wait until everybody was done at night and going to bed to fold out a couch in the living room and sleep on that. And so can you imagine you're a, a young teenage girl, uh, all your brothers, their friends, cousins, who's coming through? You know, that's stressful, it's tense. It, it takes a lot of centeredness yeah. to survive and thrive. And, I, and, and I don't want to sound like, you know, what was me or what was anybody, but we have to put ourselves in a totally different mindset when we look at our ancestors lives. It's not just the trauma of coming over on a boat or a plane and giving up your family like or, you know, the hesitancy and, and resistance from the majority population when you get here or what it's like out on the street, but it's t- it's tough at home too.
2: Right. What was acceptable then is not acceptable now and vice versa. And, you know, in, in this story that you're telling of your family, it, of course, I think it's a tragic story and it's and it's outlandish. Right. But at the same time, honor really mattered. Like the family honor really meant something because that was pretty much all you had. Yep. All you have. So, Yeah. Right. Your name and your honor. Yep. That's it, and so if if you live in that context, then you know what happened and and you know her running away it's it was bigger than it seems today, right, where it's kind of like hard to sully your family honor because everything's accepted yeah. <laughs> you know everything's okay to do, so it's it's true, you have to think about the lack of education, the lack of money, the poverty the all of these things it's just that's why sometimes to me I just think these are really good stories because I very clearly can see that they belong in another time. And I'd be more ashamed if I had the family stories that I've written about, like happening now, right? Because we know better now, but then was then. Well,
1: it's interesting because, you know, Dolores, you and I've had a lot of conversations about your writing and you you referenced your manuscript that Gay Talese offered his commentary on, but you know, you and I have talked about this, this idea of the psychological restrictions in our culture around what you share and how. And I think that's impacted your writing, right?
2: Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You have like that. You have that line between, in fact, actually, Gay Talese, might as well quote him, like, right. Has, has mentioned this perfectly. And I think it was actually on the Italian American podcast episode he came on, which we should link to in the show notes. Um, But basically, you know, he says his idea is that there aren't, there aren't more or there weren't more great Italian-American writers or published even Italian-American writers, because in our culture, privacy is like a sin. Yeah. And if you're going to sit down to write, you need to
3: be able to close your, the door. Dolores, until you said that, I have the 1993 New York times book review editorial by Gay Talese saying, where are the Italian-American authors? and that, or novelists, and that was what, the, I thanked him that day. I said, you gave me permission. You also gave me permission mm. to write the book that I wrote. That's what I sent him at the mm. Columbus Day Parade. And that was That's what great. I got, my, a, a, because it talked about Omerta, talked about all of the reluctance to for Italian America. We're well, like, where are we? Right, yeah. And um, interesting thing that, that I want to mention when I first asked about my, mo- my mother, about what happened, I mean, one, a lot of people say, to me, well, what about the police? Well, they, nobody called the police, obviously. This was, you know, mm-hmm. kept quiet. But right. so my mother said, well, she had hot pants. She was fooling around in the alley with the, with the boys and they warned her. I'm going, that doesn't, almost everybody I talked to for some reason or another, Francesca was responsible for what happened to her. You know, you always blame the victim, especially if it's a woman, a female. And I'm going. that doesn't make sense because they wouldn't have warned her. My grandmother, a few weeks before her wedding, my grandfather would come for Sunday dinner. In the beginning when they were courting, they were each at opposite ends of the living room with the parents, my great grandparents in the middle. And and then after that, they could be on opposite sides of the room, but my grandmother's siblings had to run in and out. And then just before the wedding, he forgot his hat in the house. She went to the hat rack. Through the screen door, she hands him his hat rack, and her father saw it, beat the living heck out of her, tied her to her bed, and said the wedding is off. Wow. So if he did that to my grandmother for handing my grandpa her hat two weeks before the wedding, nobody warned Francesca not to fool around in the alley with the boys. Right. So I followed the common thread of all of the different stories that I heard about Francesca's life and what happened to her. And... Soon before my mother died, her uncle came to visit her from out of state, one of the youngest brothers. My mother had uncles who were her age because my great-grandmother and my grandmother were both pregnant at the same time. And so my mother's cousin said to me, Sharon said to me, if no strangers are in the kitchen, meaning my husband or my sister's husband, my father would tell (laughs) you the story. He would like to see the picture." So I brought the picture and he started sobbing and he then told me exactly what I had deduced from all of those lines, all of those threads that I pulled together to find the common thread. And he said, this is what happened. And that was what I had surmised. And so that was another confirmation that, you know, I pretty much figured it out.
1: What a sort of departure in a lot of ways right as a journalist and a writer and somebody's written on all kinds of different topics um to go into your own family i i I don't know i've never written a book but people tell me it's like creating a child and um at some point you just kind of put it down and that's the end of it right that's it's a final product and just like rearing kids you can only sort of do so much until their nature kicks in and they're their own independent thing this is probably something that you are going to be—I don't want to say—editing uh, or amending, right? Because the book is out there, but this is a story that'll unfold for the rest of your life, right? And and yes, I mean, it's it's a part of you now.
3: It is, it is, and it resonates. It, when they say a book or a movie has legs, mm-hmm. book came out in two thousand seven, the hardcover, two thousand six, and. I I still get letters from people. I, the one of the ones that touched me so much a few years ago, I sat and bawled. If I had only written the book for this one woman, she said, my cousin, her cousin wrote me first and said, I read your book and I have to give it to my cousin. Then the cousin writes me and she said, I'm 70 years old and my whole life, I thought it was my fault. Your book has changed my life. And she said, I got beaten every day when I was a kid, even though I was a good kid and she said i never understood what was going on in my sicilian family and she said and then i had a little brother and i got beaten when he did something wrong and then but then on the other hand i've had italian americans say uh sicilian americans well my grandmother didn't have to eat off of my grandfather's plate because my great-grandmother did right and my great-grandfather liked a lot of salt and he would salt her side of the plate too
1: i mean yeah i i've got a I love my grandparents to death. Sometimes they listen. Um, and they've, they met at 14, fell in love. They've they're 87 and 85, most beautiful relationship. I always say anybody should be lucky to have half of the love they share, but my grandfather's still an old school Sicilian. So like he eats first, he gets the prime choice of everything. And you know, it's, there's also this mentality of the relationship between men and women that we took from the South of Italy. And, you know, I was reading, um, I can't remember what it was because I'm always reading like 25 Italian things at a time, and it was only recently I was rereading something that was talking about the absence of women even today in a lot of Sicilian towns in the piazza. You would go to these towns and think that there were just no women because in many of the smaller towns they still stay in the house and the men go out and do passeggiata alone and you know play cards or what briscola or uh, numbers or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, Scopa. Yes, and fingers and all these games, but like. It's true when you think about it, right? Like even today, we still have the vestiges. It may not be, you know, you're eating my scraps or it may not be abusive, but we still have the vestiges of uh, of a lot of really old school thoughts around around roles. It, it just it ekes into the families a lot.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that we'll ever, I, I think it'll take so many more generations to really get rid of that. I don't think the culture will ever get rid of it. I mean, it's just it's something so deeply ingrained in us that it's always, you know, the woman's fault, you know, the women have to take such a a backseat to support men to like raise men up in this, in our, in our culture.
1: I mean, it's, it's not something I can speak to from experience, obviously as, as a man, but I can understand the sociological roots to this, right? Like I, you know, you can see it. And of course, you know, you think about like, you think about the south of Italy too, right? The one of the seminal moments for those who are unfamiliar with southern Italian history, one of the seminal moments in in defining really what was going to become of the south of Italy was the end of the independent kingdom in 1280, uh, about 1280, I think, uh, when the Hohenstaufens finally died out. There's a bunch of wars. Anyway, to make a long story short, the Pope decided to give the south of Italy at the time, the kingdom of Sicily, the island, and the Peninsular southern uh half to the french and uh, the sicilians rebelled in the war of the sicilian vespers and that's how the island split from the peninsula and it became two sicilies over time but it all happened because apparently a french knight who was down there with this newly appointed uh retinue for this new uh, french king had accosted a woman and so the, you know you, you always get this idea of like uh chivalry and the women stay home. And, and when you live in a land that's conquered over and over again and doesn't have at real access to any kind of power or influence on a civic level, you can understand why the idea is like you stay home because it's, it's dangerous out there even for the man. It's, it's dangerous. It's, you're a stranger in your own land. You're, you're powerless in your own place. So you, can, you can kind of understand where that's built from, you know?
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And also women and children were property considered property i think women women didn't get the right to vote in italy until 1948 sure That's why yep. so. <laughs> a, a, speaking of 1948 like so so here here they come over it's 1914 what i often think about francesca was here she is 16 years old in 1914 1920 women get the vote here things are opening up for women, you know, and what kind of a life might she have had? And, um, and then it was cut short.
1: You know, I was reading in your notes about your upbringing in the Detroit and the area around in the sixties and the sort of boom of uh, feminism. And the, uh, I think you referenced uh, in our notes, it was reference like the flower children and all this stuff and wrestling with, what identity means as an Italian American in that cauldron of change, you know, and I think it's something that people still go through today. I mean, we talk about it a lot on the show, this idea of how do you keep track of the sacred and not the profane and evolve forward our values because some values that are held in a lot of Italian American families may not be particularly popular today, but that doesn't necessarily make them bad. So this idea of being an immigrant or the descendant of an immigrant, unless you sort of fully go one way or the other, you're always navigating the popular values versus the values that you bring from your family. And you're always, you're always redefining yourself in so many ways. And I, I, I oftentimes wonder if those who had earlier immigrations or immigrations from groups that were not as alien as our Southern Italians in particular or Italians in general were, are they consciously navigating this same thing that I find a lot of Italian-Americans are, are always navigating. Where do, where do I fit here? And what am I taking from the old into the new? You know, it's, it's something that continuously comes up, even multiple generations removed. Yeah, I mean, the cultures are so different.
3: I have some friends uh, whose grandparents came from northern Italy. And her grandmother was dating. I mean, my mother, when my mother dated, her brothers used to have to come along on the dates. And... Marge said to me, "Oh my God, my grandmother just went out with her girlfriends, et cetera. Et cetera. So it was they were they were women of the same age. Uh, while well, her grandmother was older than she was. It wasn't even her mother; it was her grandmother was freer than my mother was, a generation later.
1: Yeah, I could you could to, you could totally understand that. I mean, I think my dad's parents were in arranged marriage. They got married in the early fifties. So yeah, you know, that's. That's, I mean, there's just arranged marriages going on uh, not that long ago, you know.
3: When I was 18, my grandmother told me she was going to take me to Sicily and find me a husband, and I said, <laughs> no, you're not.
1: <laughs> I, my wife always tells a story about her her grandmother from Abruzzo who lived to like 99, I think, and uh, she was the mother of 10 kids, came over here, didn't speak much English other than to say, God bless you, I love you, my, and, you know, my wife was the one of the youngest, grandchildren of many many and my wife says uh when she was growing up she had buck teeth and so she went and she got braces obviously and when she finally got them taken off her grandmother used the most english she'd ever heard when she said now somebody will marry you we were almost like we were almost too late she was like but no no i'm 15 you know like this is not how it happens here Like nobody's checking my teeth like a broodmare you know but like you know that was her mindset
0: I remember when I was still like a kid, like a teenager, it was still a thing like that if you had any sort of like illness or God forbid you had any sort of like autoimmune thing or something you couldn't help. The mentality of my family was like, you don't talk about this, you don't, you don't say that because it's like, even if you like have a gluten allergy, it's like, don't talk about it. No one's going to marry you. (laughs) It's crazy. Even if you're Uh left-handed, like, oh my god, being left-handed was like being (laughs) touched by the devil.
3: It's like (laughs) Rosella, my mother had hay fever. And and my grandmother told her it's a cold. It's a cold when she was dating my dad. He'll never marry you. You say it's a cold. Yeah. My mother said I had a cold that lasted the whole summer.
0: <laughs> but it was it was a real thing. Like my mother yeah. actually wrote a short story about called the uh, the colorful umbrellas about a woman who um you know who stayed home like they they kept it a secret that she that she was ill um and didn't take her to doctors. Because if she was seen going to a doctor, she would have been, you know, marked as sick sickly Mm -hmm. and no one was ever going to marry her. And she died. (laughs) And she said and my mother said when she was young, a lot of women died like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of my grandmother. My grandmother had my paternal grandmother had she was one of the youngest of 12. And uh, most of them lived in this six apartment building that I referenced earlier. And she had a lot of sisters who were like old maids who had, uh, you know, um, what was I don't know what they had suffered from some, you know, lung ailment or this and that. And I think of my my grandfather's brother who had polio when he was a kid, my uncle Sally, and he was the nicest guy in the world because I was the last one born in the house over a 80 year period or a 70 year period. I spent a lot of time with him and he. You know, he walked with the cane. He had to, one leg shorter than the other. He had a shoe to correct it. But other than that, he was completely functional. But my great grandmother, who had immigrated from Campania, in her mind, like he actually met a woman that he wanted to marry and she wouldn't let him. She wouldn't let him leave. So he was just kind of kept there until she died. And sure enough, as my grandfather's siblings died off, he was the last member of my family in that house sort of left alone. If, if you know, I wasn't checking in on him or my dad or my uncle or a cousin And it's really sad because it's not just women. It's also this idea of shame around any kind of irregularity ailment, whatever you want to call it. You know, this man could have had a very normal life,
0: Yeah, but I'm sorry. No, if you were a man in Italy at that time, even if you had a club foot, even if you had one arm, they would have found you somebody.
1: I don't know. I, I, I think there's a great shame around like, think about like how, We did an episode once many years ago now around uh, advocacy for handicap. And, you know, think about how infrequently you encounter those with physical handicaps in Italy because many are just kept home. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, you know, you can't go out into the world. It's such so so anathema to the American mentality, particularly today, of this idea of like, you know, overcome obstacles and go out. And like in Italy, it's just like, let's keep everything closed in in private and it's you
2: think it's shame or is it like a care for the person like did did your grandma not want him to leave because she was afraid he couldn't function in the world
1: i don't know i i, I didn't i didn't know my great grandmother she died before i was born
2: sorry great grandmother uh,
1: okay. I, I i don't know i don't know what sort of drives somebody i think there's a lot of fear uh i think you know dolores you and i i'm sure could, could go off for hours on you know having young children now and like you know every time they're sick you're fearful and okay put her in bed with us that's what we do at least you know she's got a sniffle put her in bed with us like this idea that you can protect somebody but i do think there's also a sense of shame i do
0: but you're also talking about that generation where they had so many children and one child especially in the south when you had when you're talking about you have six seven eight nine ten children there's the there was a common mentality at the time that one of the children would stay behind to kind of take care of the parents and not get married. that's
1: true that's there was very a, true a
0: very big expectation right. on that actually it used to be youngest daughter yeah would be meant
2: yeah. to not be married yep that's how i was raised i mean not the not be married part but that i would stick around mm-hmm. well yeah yeah now
0: it's like we're allowed yeah. to get married but we you know have to stay home like you know we have to stay to take care yeah. of them. <laughs>
3: yeah
0: yeah, yeah, but back then, then it was yeah. that you were not allowed to get married, and you were you were like the sacrificial lamb, you know, of the family. It was a very it was a very normal thing, actually.
1: Yeah, I have a friend of the family who's Albanian, and uh, he and his wife and kids live in a mother daughter with his parents. And uh, he said something about, oh, you know, so much of my family's in uh, actually in Detroit, in Michigan, and uh, you know, I'd love to move there, blah blah blah. But he said uh, in the Albanian families, or at least in their um, their clan, because Albania still has pretty distinct clan cultures, Uh, the youngest son is required to raise his family in the same house with his parents and take care of them. And, you know, it was like not even a question for him. And uh, I think that we sometimes here in the United States, this Italian American life, forget that we're not very far removed from a lot of instances where people could tell you those conventions. Uh, without skipping a beat where they were just socially accepted and, and understood conventions, like what the youngest woman staying home with her parents, you know, and 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 it, and it it speaks to the modern Italian-American experience. I think that we're not that far removed from that.
0: No, we're not. I mean, look at me. My brother moved to, you know, the, the, the end of Canada. But uh, like I could I don't think I could ever do that.
1: Yeah, I, I get that.
2: Yeah, this is like the story of my life. I can't even get into it right now.
1: well it's Uh probably as we like to say around here best saved for a whole nother episode but one that i think would be uh very worthwhile and and karen you've spurred all this with your amazing story for our audience out there tell them what's next what are you working on
3: well i'm working on a, a thriller and it uh deals in part with the madonna nere of italy and um I'm kind of keeping it under wraps. It's it's uh, a, a an Italian Jewish Da Vinci code kind of feminist thriller. Let's let's just say that.
1: Wow, you know, one of those Madonna nere is in my father-in-law's town in Pescasseroli in Abruzzo. Ah. so if you ever find yourself over in Pescasseroli, you let me know because everybody, uh, many of the family still stayed over there, and it's a beautiful tradition. The, the the black Madonna, really interesting.
3: Very very interesting.
1: Yeah, well, we look forward to that coming out for sure, and. and having uh conversations like this we would love to have you back anytime this is great stuff and uh i'm sure our audience is going to really enjoy it
3: thank you so much it's been a very stimulating conversation it's probably the most the most broad and interesting podcast that i've done on on this subject and i i really appreciate the
1: hour that we spent together uh, thank you very much i think i speak for always when i say if there's one thing we do well it's meander uh, <laughs> <that's who> we're, <laughs> I mean, we, we're one big happy Italian American family on a road trip with no map. So uh you work back anytime in the car. And uh, I hope the audience out there enjoys that as much as we enjoy uh conversing, enjoys our meandering uh, on the on the listening end. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: See that you're
3: born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano